listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host and co-DM, McGill. He's a co-DM because we're DMs, we're GMs, we're storytellers, we're holemeisters, we're whatever you want to call a person who runs a role-playing game in any given context. And on this podcast, we tell the tales of role-playing games past that we've run, and we glean insights and ideas from those tales, and uh, we compare and campaign. We compare and contrast, compare and campaign, and that is the show. So, I am doing my story, the second campaign in a series about the interdimensional agency known as the Empoc. It's a D&D game, and this second campaign is Al's Aces. We have just started the new act, uh, Stratification. And meanwhile, McGill, what are you up to? Uh, The players are on their way to yet another location. It's It's another episode in a new place in Orth, somewhere on the continent. Uh, This one has been foreshadowed, uh, but probably not that well by me on this podcast, but I'll explain how it's been foreshadowed in the game. And uh, yeah, I I would say that this episode for them, this session, was probably the most sort of typical D&D setup they had had for a while. Did you say the name of the session? Uh, The Service... For the dead in Winter Shivan. Now, I looked at that word Winter Shivan, and I was like, is that a typo in Winter's Haven? But no, it's Winter Shivan. Yeah, it's a place. Winter's Haven with an I. That's some George R. R. Martin stuff. Mm. That's his style to take a name, like a normal fantasy name, and then like change one letter. Like it's not... Sir Greg, it's Sir Grig. Right, right. So over here we got what looks like it was originally written Winter's Haven, and they're like, too obvious. We don't want McGill complaining another, about another Radagast over here. Let's make it Winter <laughs> Shivin. <laughs> no, but see, Winter's Haven, that is fine by me. Radagast, I've said it too many times. You know my rant. It only bothers just, me because it's such an obvious reference. I just think Winter's it's funny Haven because is just a totally like it's a fine generic fantasy place name. But like for me, I think that more than Radagast for me, like Winter Shivan is my Radagast. Like I look at that name and I'm like, what? Winter Shivan? <laughs> that bother? Why does that bother you? I don't know. It just it like. It just, like, I guess I'm cool with it. I just, it's a weird name, and it looks like it should be a much more generic name that was just, like, very slightly tweaked. So, like, uh, a previous place that we visited in the Greyhawk campaign is Rook Roost, which is a fairly generic fantasy place name, but uh, it didn't seem to bother you. But would it have bothered you if it was, like, Rook Robst or something like that? Uh, it would have to be more obvious what the thing was. Like, um, Rook if it, Rest? If it was called Green Dill, 
and it was clearly Greendale, and they just put an I in, instead of the A. <laughs> uh, like, if, if it was called Mount Hold, but they just changed it to Mount Hald, I'd be like, Mount Hald? <laughs> Winter Shivin? Winter Shivin. See, it's funny because it never even occurred to me that it was supposed to be Winter Winter's Haven. Uh, I think because reading it out loud, like Shivin just kind of sounds like shiver and winter is cold. So it's like, yeah, ah, it sounds cold totally place. different. But the way it looks written down is like what what makes it jump out at me. It's so it's so odd. <laughs> but you have no problem with Radagast. Radagast City, totally fine. I mean, I get your problem with it. I just, <laughs> I guess if you're going to have a setting with a Radagast, you might, or, or a Winter Shivin, you might as well have a Radagast. You might as well take all the rules off the table. Radagorst. <laughs> Radabast. Radabast. Well, it's Radagast City, so what if it was, instead there was like Radagast Seti? And then... It changed... They changed the city instead of the, the Radagast part. And then the capital is called Gambolf. Gambolf. You know, so, uh, t- talking about place names, not to go off on too much of a tangent, but talking about place names, this, uh, this kind of makes me want to run a campaign where I name all the, the place names after uh, names from the National Lampoon's Board of the Rings. You must be familiar with Board of the Rings, right? Yeah, but you know, it's so funny because you started to say like names from people from, and I'm like, you could put so many things in that blank and it'd be hilarious. It's like all the cities are named after characters from RoboCop. <laughs> that rule. You arrive in Murphy. And then we're, and then we just come to a town and there's guns, guns, guns on the sign. Man, that's. It should be a planet in Borderlands. Um, and uh, damn it, I just watched uh, RoboCop. But what's the name of Kurtwood Smith's character? I keep on thinking Cohagen, but that's from Total Recall, right? Yeah. Uh, it's it's what's his name? He's got a great name. It's like Cohagen. Man, I I would literally have to look it up. I'm I'm totally. Blanking. Oh, this is gonna drive me crazy. So I'm gonna look it up while you keep talking. Uh, okay, also, I was just thinking, like, when you started that pitch, I was like, maybe just do a campaign where you get to do, like, you just fill the sort of, like, metropolitan density of the setting to the point where, like, there's place names that you can fill in all over the place. You just try every freaking name you can think of, just, like, Mushgrumpsh, Boof, Bungoo, Ding Dock, Klongor. So you arrive in the settlement of Clarence Boddicker. <laughs> ah, yeah. That's, oh, my God. Of course. I, I can't believe Boddicker is actually a pretty good place name, too. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's like a little village called Boddicker. Um, no, what I, the point I was getting to with Board of the Rings is uh, then you can do Radagast City, but the parody version. So, you know, they gone daft instead of Gandalf. I mean, it's OK, I guess. You're arriving Gondaft. It's okay, I guess. It would have to be one of those sort of Pratchett-esque, Piers Anthony-esque comedy campaigns. I Now I'm just thinking about a wacky goblin setting where all the names are just like Blongaboo, Slingor, 
you arrive in the city of Doran Damien and on the bridge of Mushgrumpf. See, if I was doing a goblin setting, all the place names would be things just like really basic goblin things. You arrive in the city of Rat Corpse to meet your contacts. Yeah, I mean, in fairness... He wants wants you to travel across the Goblin Bay to the city of... or to the settlement of Pillage Village. That's good. I, I, um... I mean, I've gone over it in my setting of Drail already, but, like, I got Goblin Town, and it's got the different districts. You got the Meat District, the Spooky District, the Shiny District, you know. That's all pretty simple Goblin stuff. It's outside the land of stench. So I'm pretty sure I went long and long at at the start of the last one. So I think you get to take it from here. Sure. So um, I was just saying that uh, Winter Shivan has been foreshadowed. But uh, as I was going through my notes, I realized I probably didn't set up the foreshadowing for Winter Shivan much on the podcast proper when I was describing the the adventures where it was uh, described before, like name dropped before. Yeah, because I remember I remember when you foreshadowed Purnell. And then when they went to Purnell, I was like, oh, this is where that dang thing was happening with the Drom Drom Ironhold. Yeah, that's Boy, right. Okay, so, in this show. so in this case, the uh, the reason I forgot to foreshadow it is because it, these were just like little sly references that were just kind of slipped in. Um, and uh, the players didn't really catch on to them until I started spelling it out, like to send them on this quest. Uh, so... In the encounter they had in Diambeth's Diambeth's Delving, uh, the uh, in Eldred when they were infiltrating a mansion at the same time as Cymbeline and members of the Scarlet Brotherhood, when they were sort of peeping on the cultists in Cymbeline going through the library of the mansion, they overheard them mention Winter Shivan, but it was just sort of mixed into the conversation. Like, I wanted to set this up, but I didn't want to make it clear, like, they were going, like, next we go to Winter Shivan. It was more like, and you know what's happening in Winter Shivan. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that later. Anyway, you better Man, got, you, you guys better. hear that? Their plan, their plan extends all the way into freaking winter. They're going to be dealing with these guys forever. <laughs> Did he say Man. Winter's Haven? We got to get to Winter's Haven. Um... And then uh, in the last adventure, when they were infiltrating the temple, the the cultist temple, when they went into the library and they were attacked by a ghost, like the ghost encounter kind of took precedence. But in that, uh, when they were investigating the library, they grabbed a whole pile of what looked like strategic documents that were in the library. So they just like grabbed them without really looking at them too carefully and stuffed them in their bag. And... Those documents that they investigated when they got back to the parsonage also indicated that something was going on with the Scarlet Brotherhood in Wintershiven. So at the start of uh, this adventure, they had brought uh, Lisa, the woman who was going to be sacrificed, back to the parsonage. And uh, she was unconscious by the time they got her back. And they assumed, like, she was just sort of overcome by the events that had happened and was perhaps drugged by the cultists. 
But I mentioned on the last episode that I wanted to draw something from a movie I really like called Doomsday, which I think is a great B movie. But this is uh, what you foreshadowed. Yeah, I foreshadowed this part a lot more because this is what I really like. In Doomsday, uh, there's a moment where the heroes uh, first arrive in this uh, sort of escape from New York style area where it's been it's it's been quarantined with a giant wall and nobody comes in or out and so they they enter in this big apc and instantly find themselves beset by just the crazy cannibal people who live there live in this sort of prison and uh one of the things they notice is that among the the cannibal people, there is like a little girl who appears to be traumatized. And so they grab the little girl and they bring her into the APC and like shut the door to protect her. And she turns out to sort of be a sleeper agent. So like they shove her in the APC, they turn their backs on her. And when they're not looking, she pulls out a knife and starts killing people. And so I do the same thing here with Lisa. They assumed that uh, she was just a victim. She'd been kidnapped for a sacrifice. They bring her back to the parsonage and like put her down in a bed. And then they leave her alone and start sort of going over all the notes they were given and plotting their next move. And when they're not looking, she gets up and attacks them. And she sort of tries to attack them tactically one at a time, starting with Eric, who was given sort of first shift watching over her. And... A fight ensues and she starts just like screaming fanatical ramblings about the Scarlet Brotherhood and how you're all doomed and Lord Yuz is going to come back and take, you know, just bring the world back into chaos the way it should be. And uh, the fight, you know, gets heavy. She's literally trying to kill them all. And uh, in the process, they end up killing her instead And it's at that point they decide to start, like, going through the documents that they found. They realize that, like, this is this is getting way bigger than they anticipated with the cult. It's clear that there is some kind of organized organized uh, effort here to, you know, bring about Yuz or bring back Yuz uh, the way uh, this sort of demon god ruled prior to the Greyhawk Wars in the ancient times. Uh, They're trying to summon this god of chaos. And so they're like, we got to investigate this cult further because they're obviously trying to disrupt the natural order and uh, fight against... I would have contacted the Order Istis and be like, hey, we need a sleeper agent because they had one. (laughs) They they didn't end up doing that, but the Order of Istis does come into play again in this adventure. Uh, So all that to say, they go through the notes, the documents that they found in the cultist temple... They see Wintershiven mentioned and remember Cymbeline mentioned Wintershiven as well. And they decide, okay, this is the next place that we have to go. And all of that is just really set up to get to the adventure Service for the Dead, which is a part of the Fate of Istis campaign module. And so they head to Wintershiven and they arrive on the outskirts of the city at nightfall. The streets are like deserted. Uh, unbeknownst to the players, there's a curfew in effect uh, in an effort to stem the tide of the Red Death. Curfew in effect, man. Still, it's just all too familiar. This whole campaign is just far too relevant to uh, the to events these days in reality. And and um, when you were running this campaign, did this campaign run into the quarantine? 
No, it actually, well, it, it ended shortly before the quarantine. It ended in like January of 2020. So weird, right? But uh, by the time it ended, the plague wasn't the one. It wasn't one of like the central driving forces of the plot. Uh, we're going to end up shifting more to focus on the Scarlet Brotherhood's efforts to summon Yuz back into the material plane. That that ends up becoming sort of the more pressing issue. And I guess this is where those efforts really started to become clear and and come to the forefront of the plot. Um, but yes, like. In 2019, we were running this, talking about a, a plague sweeping the land and forcing curfews and lockdowns and quarantines and, and making travel between cities difficult. So all sorts of just weird coincidental foreshadowing, especially considering I was running it from a module that was written like decades ago. So weird, weird coincidence. So the deal with Wintershiven is that this is a city that is um, like it, it's it's run by theocratic rule. Uh, the church is very much also the the military and the police service here. The the uh, the soldiers who make up the the city watch are called the church militants, and they have they reserve the right to put the question any heretics they come across and put the questions like put them on trial. So. The players arrive uh, on the outskirts of the city, place is deserted, and the first thing they spot is an inn uh, with firelight shining through the windows. This is what I mean about, like, this is sort of a classic D&D structure. We're going to start at an inn. And as they're approaching the inn, uh, however, they hear someone behind them go, hold! And they turn around and they see a small contingent of nine armed church militants ride up, and the leader of them, like, points at Maeve specifically, because Maeve is dressed in, you know, her paladin robes and is obviously uh, from some holy order. And uh, the, the church militants immediately take issue with this and go, like, come to spread your lies. If you're looking for hospitality, I suggest you find other, you know, uh, uh, other places to stay. And, like, he turns to the rest of the group and, and says, you're traveling companion. <laughs> well, right. They they worship. I, I've got it in here, but it doesn't actually factor in. Who do these guys worship? They worship. Oh, it's all just church militant nonsense. Uh, they worship the Lightbringer, the god known as the Lightbringer. They are called the Theocracy of the Pale. Oh, I did mention Theocracy of the Pale uh, in at the end of the. Uh, the adventure with Cymbeline and Eldred. I did mention that one. Um, so they basically are, are immediately taking issue with Maeve's presence in the city, uh, saying, like, no outside gods allowed, and also saying to the rest of the group, like, you better find a new traveling companion because she is not welcome within our city walls. And they harass and harass and harass the group, and uh, are looking, the church militants are basically looking for a fight. And uh, the PCs manage to... Are they armored? Yes, the church militants are armored. They have uh, scale mail on. Or sorry, banded mail. And um, 
ultimately the players decide they don't want to fight. They say, all right, we're not going to go into the city. We just want to stay the night at the inn. And the church militants are like, yeah, fine, but I better not see you around here again. So they head into the inn and when, after they enter, they notice like they, you know, I, I give them time to sort of go in and get settled and they rent rooms there and they go down to the common area and Maeve notices right away that there is another cleric of Istis down there uh, sitting at a nearby table. So the party goes over to meet with her and she introduces herself as Arlena. And the uh, she kind of, they ask, you know, what she's doing here. And isn't it an odd coincidence that uh, we find another member of the uh, the Church of Istis, the Order of Istis here? And of course, Arlena says, ah, you know, coincidence or is it the work of fate? And so they ask her what she's doing there. And she explains that she was sent here on orders from the Order of Istis to uh, to free the spirit of a friend of hers who is another cleric of the Order who died within the city walls. And the deal here is that uh, this other member of the Order of Istis, this cleric whose name is Warren, uh, Warren had a ring of what is effectively like spirit jar. So when he died, his spirit was caught in the ring and uh, he was unable, his spirit was then unable to pass into sort of like the after realms, the afterlife. And so uh, Arlena has come to retrieve the ring and free his spirit so that he might pass on to, uh, you know, to, to meet his maker effectively. To the eternal judgment of Istis. Precisely. Flip, flipping a coin a million freaking times. Eternal times. <laughs> um, so the party agrees to help her out. And she explains that uh, like, she can't do it herself because she's been made. They're on to her. She went into the city. They don't like Istis. They don't like clerics of other gods within the city limits. And they're watching her carefully. But if the players can disguise themselves then, and, and, you know, not make it obvious that uh, they are there on behalf of the Order of Istis, perhaps they can go into the city and find the cleric's body and retrieve the ring for her. And, you know, uh, the, the basic setup where I will meet you here at the inn tomorrow night. I'll wait here every evening for you until you arrive. And, you know, will you do this for me? And they agree to do it for her. Um, and she gives them instructions uh, saying that he died within the city limits and uh, his body was actually interred in a commoner's crypt in the city cemetery. Uh, so she says, you know, there's a cemetery. Its entrance has wrought iron gates. There are two carriage lamps, one on each side of the door to this crypt. You should have no difficulty recognizing it. My friend is interred, interred within and I want to free his free his soul. So uh, Maeve gets a change of clothes and uh, puts all of her Istis, Order of Istis related gear in their room at the inn. So she's not wearing like her, her silver cloak. She takes off her holy symbol and everything and just tries to like look as much like a commoner as possible. And uh, so they head into town 
And something I like about this adventure is it's not, there is like the dungeon crawl aspect once they get to the cemetery and then once they get to the crypt. But there are a couple of other snags here that I think sort of spice things up a bit. And the first is uh, that there's this teenage girl whose name is Cheryl. And Cheryl uh, bumps into Eric and is immediately smitten. You know, it's just a teenage girl. Eric's, Eric's pretty good looking, I guess. And uh, so she just develops a case of puppy love and starts, uh, you know, just starts looking after him and, and introducing herself and everything. But the problem, of course, is that Cheryl's father is a member of the church militants. And so uh, she basically what happens is she bumps into Eric. She's carrying a bunch of stuff. She drops all her things and he helps her pick them up. And she immediately develops a crush on him. And then from behind him, Eric hears a voice go like, you get away from my daughter and storming over is this big guy in the uniform of the church militant. He's gigantic. And he sort of points at everyone and goes, you're a bunch of strangers. Get away from here. I'm sure you're corrupting followers of the one way and you. And he points at Eric and he goes, if you ever come within a dagger cast of my daughter again, you're dead. You hear me? I'll and then I'll put what's left of you to the question. Now get out of here. And he like drags away his daughter and the players are all just sort of left stunned by this interaction. Uh, I'm pretty sure Hulka said something along the lines of, they're not very friendly here, are they? Or something along, like, along those lines. And uh, so they keep walking through the city, and there are only like a few people out, as I said, because there's a curfew in effect. So, uh, for example, Cheryl was like on her way home from buying some supplies, and that's why she was allowed to be out. Also, I guess her dad is a member of the church militants, so an exception is made. But uh, the only other people around are these other pilgrims, uh, followers of other gods who are just effectively homeless people. And the church militants are cracking down on heretical beliefs. And so there are these, these homeless pilgrims who sort of keep to themselves. But when they see the PCs coming, one of them instantly knows, and this guy is a follower of Istis, instantly knows that they are involved in this grand quest, perhaps because of some vision, or maybe he's just crazy. But uh, so they're, they're walking through town, and then like out of a dark alley, this bedraggled, scraggly, white-haired homeless guy sort of pops out of the shadows and runs over to Maeve, and he says, wait, I saw you. I saw you. And he like clutches at the if hems you, of her. If you committed to him being crazy, you could have like broken the fourth wall. It's like, we're all just pawns in some game. People are pulling our strings. <laughs> uh, I didn't go quite that far, but he says like, you are here on behalf of Istis. I would recognize you anywhere. You are all heroes on a great quest. Um, and... So they are instantly like, oh, my God, we got to get away from him. So he keeps like trying to paw at their clothes and they are like shaking him off and they can hear more church militants coming. And of course, already they've had a couple of encounters and they know they're on thin ice. So they just bolted and headed directly for the cemetery. And uh, the cemetery is this big area. It's surrounded by this eight foot high wall uh, with a wrought iron gate and uh the gate's closed, but not locked. This is sort of a public place and the gates are open during the day, but they're not like shut to everyone completely at night. They're just sort of closed, standing closed. 
And the cemetery itself is a necropolis with mausoleums and crypts in cl- like crowded rows with decorative stone and uh, oh here it is it's Fultus Fultus is the uh, Fultus the Lightbringer is the god that they worship here so many of these crypts have the sigil of Fultus upon them mausoleums have like a single entrance uh, and you know there are a lot that are like family crypts and mausoleums so they head into the cemetery and then quickly realize that they have no idea where to look they they're instantly sort of lost in this maze of sem- of uh, crypts and mausoleums and if you've ever been to sort of a necropolis style cemetery it's really easy to get lost it's uh this place is going to be total mazes went to Père Lachaise cemetery in france and that place is really cool but uh you could easily get lost among the, the crypts in there. I only know about getting lost in uh, cemeteries in uh, video games and levels. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I was I did go to the catacombs. That was cool. Uh, was you had a guide, I take it? No. Oh, really? But it was pretty down easy there? to get through. Ah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, they are wandering through the cemetery, trying to find the crypt that was indicated by Arlena. She said it had two lamps on either side of the door. And most of these crypts don't have the two lamps. Uh, But they're having a hard time. And so I had them do some navigation checks and, like, search uh, all those good old-fashioned 3.5, D&D 3.5 skills and what they first found was they overheard voices and sort of peering around uh, a corner of uh, one of the mausoleums, they can see three members of the Scarlet Brotherhood scurrying around, uh, you know, with, a, with torches. They're obviously looking for something, but the players aren't really sure what. So they start following them and they haven't gone very far following these cultists when they hear a voice go like, hey, psst, psst getting their attention and they turn around and it's the girl Cheryl uh, who's smitten with Eric and she goes like come on over here and right away they're like oh god this is going to be trouble but maybe she can help us and sure enough when they describe what they're looking for she goes I know where that is so she leads them to the entrance to that crypt away from the cultists and she says I'm going to hide outside here and keep watch and if anybody's coming I will give you guys a signal and uh, so they, they tentatively agree to this and they go inside the mausoleum. And this part is a sort of a dungeon crawly type thing. It's, you know, a map with multiple they rooms. Get caught between a team of killer robots and a bunch of werewolves and vampires. Oh, no. Thankfully not. Uh, the first thing they encounter is a giant rat nest in the first room. They they go in, and I wanted to fake them out by making them think that it was a black pudding, where they go in, and there's this writhing black mass in the corner, and they're, you know, instantly like, oh, God, what is it? And then they shine their... the, the uh, Who was it? I think it was Maeve who cast light, 
and they see that it's a big writhing pile of rats who have made a nest out of old rags and scraps of parchment and things. And they, the players realize, like, as long as we don't go and bother them, maybe they'll leave us alone. So they just sort of skirt around the rat nest and they go into the next a, room. I have a brief story to tell that's from a game that I played in. Um, <clears throat> so we have been playing this mini game that I've been running, uh, Ashes Against the Grain, uh, in which you have played Nox and you had the pipes of the sewer. And I had a character with pipes of the sewer once back when I played uh, Horde of the Dragon Queen and its follow-up, Rise of Tiamat. And I'm pretty sure, like, the real standout use, the perhaps the only real use I can think of for it that I, that I employed it for was... Uh, we were in a dungeon that was like we were it it was a subplot based thing for one of the characters where we were fighting uh minions of this demon of like plague basically and so we were going through their dungeon and we found this place that was all full of like gross like like huge centipedes like like not like giant centipedes but just like really like cat sized centipedes and it was like super gross and there were all these bugs and stuff and and eggs I mean and those stuff. are pretty big centipedes but we needed to take a rest and so it was, I think what it was was we took a short rest but then what I did what my character did was he pulled out the pipes of the sewers and summoned a swarm of rats who then like start basically to eat all the bugs and so then it, like as we had this short rest my character was just playing the pipes and like gleefully watching this insane like battle of huge infestation of bugs and rats and <laughs> uh that was a good time yeah i i sold my or i traded in my pipes of the sewers because my character did not have a very high wisdom or charisma and all the checks with pipes of the sewers are wisdom and charisma based. So what kept happening is he'd summon all the rats and then the rats would just attack him. Ah, uh, dangus. Ah, uh, dang. Uh, so the way this crypt is laid out is like a, like a cross, like a plus sign, basically. There are five square rooms there's one in the center and then a room branching off of each side, each of the four sides of that middle square room. And then the topmost room is where the entryway is. So there's like a hallway into a square room. Then the next room is that center room of the, the plus sign. And so uh, they, the, they enter sort of through that entry hallway and immediately catch the stench of death, this like ammonia-like reek of decomposition. And it makes like their eyes water. It makes it hard to breathe. And instantly this means that they're going to take minus two uh, to hit on any combat and also on things like spot checks. That said, they do notice in this room that the dust on the floor has been disturbed by footprints. People have been in here pretty recently. So they enter the first room and immediately uh, chaos erupts around them as a whole bunch of bats have been disturbed by their presence 
and just start flying around and uh, they don't instantly attack the PCs unless they are attacked first, which happens. The, the bats like fly all around the PCs, the PCs attack and they have to have this little encounter fighting a swarm of bats. Uh, and the, each of these rooms, in each of the five rooms that make up the catacomb are lined with uh, crypts. These big stone ornate coffins, some have like designs on the lids and all of them are coated in this like gross sort of black slime, which is revealed to be bat poop, bat guano. Bah. And so the players start searching the crypts. They start like going through them. They want to find wherein the, uh, the missing cleric and they've decided they're just going to do it by like opening the crypts, look inside. Uh, most of the, most of the crypts just have these like decayed bodies and skeletons uh, that have clearly been there for a while. And all of the, all of the dead in the crypts are resting peacefully. The center room is, uh, yeah, they go into the center room and in the middle is a big golden symbol of a raid sun, uh, the holy symbol of, of Poltus, the, uh, the light bringer. And uh, there are four crypts in this one and they start looking through them and it's clear that these crypts hold the bodies of warriors. Uh, they're sort of dressed in armor, uh, more soldier-like, they have swords except for one of the four crypts where they throw it open and instantly this pillar of fire shoots up out of it. And this, this is a touch that I added. Uh, usually in, like according to the, the Fate of Istis module, the players should be fighting like haunts or specters in here, but I wanted to sort of throw them for a loop and uh, do something a little funny. And I wish I could remember what inspired this because I was definitely inspired by something I had watched recently. Like maybe it was Harmon Quest or something, but basically I wanted to, or, or it may have even been a, a post on Reddit, but basically what I wanted to do is I wanted to completely throw them for a loop by presenting something genuinely like scary and what looks like uh, is gonna be a big threat, but it's not. It's just something mundane and actually friendly. So. There's this like pillar of fire that erupts out of the crypt. They all back away and this flaming skeleton climbs out. Yeah, you mentioned out. this on a previous episode. Yeah, the flaming skeleton climbs out and starts walking towards them with its like arms out front. And they don't know what to make of it. They all draw their weapons. They're ready for a fight. And the skeleton like grabs its head and goes like, oh, man. I'm dead, aren't I? And he's like looking down at himself and he goes like, ah, oh, no. And it turns out that he's just like, he's some sort of flunky wizard who he was cursed and then he was killed. And the cursed was if his crypt was ever opened, he would be revived as a flaming skeleton. And uh, so after a moment of confusion, he just introduces himself. and He's like, look, you can just put those weapons down. I am in no mood for a fight. He introduces his, his name as Kenneth, and I wanted to give him kind of just like an annoyed, weary, almost like hipster millennial attitude where he's like, I just, did any of you just have like a coffee or something? 
oh, I feel terrible. This is worse than a hangover. And so <laughs> players are like completely stunned by the revelation that this flaming skeleton is just a normal guy. <laughs> he doesn't mean them any harm. And as they are coming to grips with this, suddenly uh, the suddenly this pebble lands at their feet and complete silence closes in on them and then everything goes black. And what has happened is that the Scarlet Brotherhood noticed all the bats fly out of the crypt and realized somebody was in there. And so the, uh, the pebble is a trigger for a silence spell and then the... the the leader of the Scarlet Brotherhood, this little faction of them, casts darkness on them as well. And so three cultists, including one of them who is a, a fifth level cleric, swoop in and start fighting. And so the players have to do this. I know that in 5e, you can do that trick by casting darkness on the pebble. That's what I thought was going on. I don't know if 5e, does silence work the same way? But I've definitely seen that trick where, like, uh, the guy who played as Chessie in my game, he, in one of the games he ran, he had Drow Ninja that threw Shuriken at us that had darkness on them. Oh, that's badass. Um, I just ran this the way it was written in the module, which was um, the, uh, the leader of the cultists uh, cast Silence with a 15-foot radius on a pebble and prepared a darkness spell, and that's just sort of what he did. He threw down the silence pebble and then cast darkness on them, and a a blind fight ensued. But uh, unbeknownst to the cultists, they had this new flaming skeleton on their side. Ah. And, and so it, there was this like wild blind fight that happened uh, with three cultists and our party and then a new ally who's <laughs> this flaming skeleton. And uh, I can't remember how many he took out, but at least one of the cultists was like grabbed by the flaming skeleton and he did like a uh, scorpion from Mortal Kombat move and just like breathe fire all over the guy. The guy ran away screaming. And so yeah, I'm just imagining this scene as like, you know, you hear the clash of steel and whatnot, but then it's just like, and then you also like, at first you hear just like the clash of steel and combat and like the grunts of like swinging and stuff. But then you hear like, oh, what, what the, what? I'm, a, ah, ah, I'm on fire. I'm on fire. <laughs> yeah. What? What? And then like, oh that guy God. just comes running out of the crypt, screaming and like flaming. Nobody knows what the <laughs> fuck's going on. So they have the, the big fight. They kill the cultists and uh, and the the darkness and silence spells wear off. And uh, so they're left like, you know, the, enough light returns to the room that they can see. And they're sort of left standing around these bodies. And Kenneth is there just sort of he heaves a big sigh and he goes like, I wish I could just go back to, to being dead. This really sucks. Like, I don't like this at all. And uh, the players Surely go like, Maeve okay. Surely Maeve has this power. Hmm? Surely Maeve has this power to put him to rest. Yeah, but uh, they, they don't want to kill him. And uh, they say like, okay, you know what? We can help you out. If you fi help us find the body of this cleric that we're looking for, we'll at least give you a safe place to stay. They liked him. They didn't want to kill him. And uh, so basically they agreed, like, help us find... 
this this dead cleric, and then you can just hang out at our parsonage. We'll find a nice so, volcano for you. Well, uh, he talks. Uh, they talk to him, and uh, I just sort of ad lib this, but. I had it be that he was always like, I always really wanted to get into blacksmithing. And they're like, perfect, you're your own forage. And so he winds up becoming the blacksmith at their parsonage. Could also, uh, they can have him hang out with the uh, tunneling with, place. Yeah, with the magman. He does. He hangs out with the magman. They, they give him yeah. like a blacksmith forage at the parsonage. Isn't and the this magman. Like a, there's like, is it Howl's Moving Castle? There's like a flame guy named cinder who like maybe yeah character, yeah there's basically. a living flame he's voiced by uh, billy crystal in the dub <laughs> um but yeah it is kind of it is kind of like that anyway so they they search the remaining crypts and they find Warren, and uh you know he he is dead but he's also wearing that that ring of the spirit as it's Warren called was wearing a ring he sure was um, and I, sh I should note that Warren is the name given in the Fate of Istis module, and I didn't want to change it just because I didn't want to, like, trip over my words or anything and call him by the wrong name when I was running this. Uh, but I pronounce it Warren because if I pronounced it Warren, they'd get suspicious. So, um, they find Warren, they grab his ring, and now they've got this challenge of how to get back to the inn while at the same time, like they've got K Kenneth with them. They don't want to make a big scene and they go outside and they are immediately confronted by a group of church militants who have found Cheryl because she snuck off, leaving her dad, you know, unaware of her, uh, of where she is. And Sure enough, there was a big disturbance in the cemetery uh, with like a flaming cultist running out of a crypt. And so they they walk outside and they, found them they find themselves facing another small contingent of church militants. And Kenneth got a bum rush these guys. That's exactly what he did. Yeah. The group was standing there and they're like, do we fight? We're outnumbered. What do we do? And Kenneth just goes like he shoves them aside and steps out and all the church militants go like, Oh my God, you know, an unholy, an unholy beast from the depths of the abyss. And he just starts shooting flames everywhere. I gave him just sort of like firebender powers basically. And, uh, it's funny cause in that crypt, there was like a big thing of uh poultice, right? This sun yeah. guy. Like they could have had the flaming skeleton come out with that on like his head or something and be like, I am the chosen of the light bringer and I am the light man. <laughs> yeah, that would have been pretty smart. But this group tends to fly by the seat of their pants, as you've pointed out before. They, they do tend to like stumble their way through things. Um, so all that said, like they they fight their way out. Uh, they either set people on fire or create just barriers of flame that allow them to get to the exit. Uh, and once they are just outside the city walls, they find they uh, send Eric out uh, using his ranger skills to just find like the nearest cave that Kenneth can hide in while the rest of them go and regroup at the inn with Arlena, present her with the ring, and she casts the necessary ritual to allow Warren's spirit to pass on. And uh, 
So the the adventure concluded with them returning to the parsonage and setting up Kenneth uh, in their forge as the new in-house blacksmith. Made new ally. Did they get upgrades to their gear because of that or something? Uh, they will in the future. And you know what? I do want to just mention here because uh, this is straight out of they the Fate of They unlocked a new gun. Yeah, they unlocked a new gun. Um, this is straight out of the Fate of Istis storyline, of course. And you know how I was saying uh, that the Fate of Istis, they, they do this thing where each adventure is supposed to be focused on a class, and I just sort of dispensed with that. Um, so when I was going over the notes again today, uh, this one is, of course... Uh, an adventure for clerics, like it's focused on the cleric class. And there's something interesting that I find uh, that I found here uh, that I wanted to note uh, to note because I, I feel like they I feel like they don't really do this in D and D anymore. Um, so Arlena is trying to convince the PCs to help her put this dead cleric to rest. It's all very cleric focused, and. The module indicates what to do if your PCs just don't agree to help her out. And it just says, if no PC agrees to help Arlena, the test of the clerics is over before it's begun, and the PCs have failed. All clerics across the continent lose one point of constitution. At the instant, it becomes clear the PCs won't change their minds. Man. The destiny of Istis. Priests pretty, suck. It's pretty brutal, but I also just find that really funny because, honestly, the fact is, I just don't really give my players the option of not taking the adventure hook. Like, what do you do in that case, right? They go like, we're not going to... We came all this way. We're not going to help this fellow member of the Order. Uh-oh. My, my constitution went down. Adventure's over. Yeah, I mean that what's really interesting to me about that is the fact that it's like it it effectively like has setting spanning repercussions and I would want to lean into that even further. You know, it's the it's like that thing I said about how um the Kelvin timeline of Star Trek, I like the theory that because Vulcan was destroyed, just the whole universe is a bit stupider. There's a there's yeah. just a bit less logic in the world. <laughs> and like so the idea like man I like the idea that like if they f if they failed this one, then suddenly like the church militant spreads throughout the place, and there's just like uh, interfaith conflict throughout the setting. All of a sudden, like um, in Pillars of Eternity, there's a whole thing where you like can cut deals with different gods, but then if you betray certain gods that you've cut deals with, there will be like repercussions for the setting and each god has one that sort of plays in the ending depending on if you betray them and so like if you betray the god of beasts then suddenly like wild animals start attacking settlements uh, out of nowhere across the world um if you betray the goddess of fire then there's droughts and wildfires all across the world in like retribution for the 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 betrayal um so yeah i really like that because but, but like, yeah, it's also a thing of, so with, with the MPOC games, I don't have to worry about this so much because it's like, as Your much mission as it should is, you choose to accept it kind exactly, of thing. Exactly. As much as it is that they, 
the whole basis of like the whole design of the campaign is that they're going on missions. And so they, they like, I don't think they ever say no. Um, but I guess like the good example I could think of is when I ran that, uh, crimes against the faith one off with you guys. And in that one, I had lots of contingencies for if you didn't want to do one thing, I just had like pressure on you guys from multiple angles so that if you didn't take one path, well, then you'd end up having to take another. Um, but in this case, it's not even a matter of like exactly. choosing it's, a path or not. Just it's like, just like, it's like literally coming to the quest giver in a video game and just being like, nah. Decline. And then it's like quest failed. Yeah. Like, I, I just, I find that interesting because all I can think is, like, why even give them that option? Like, if my players at the very beginning of an adventure, when presented with a very obvious quest hook, go, no, like, maybe I'll wing something. But more often than not, I'd probably just be like, like, this is the adventure, guys. If you want to go on the adventure, like, this is, to this is what I have planned. Or, like, have some sort of, like, uh, like I said, like a pressure on them from a different angle that, like, drives them into it but yeah it's it's funny because i like the idea of the repercussions so much but you're right in that like i can't really think of any time where it would be justified to give them such a like just like a fail button option yeah so i should say as well because then, uh, then the repercussions don't feel satisfying because they didn't really it's, it's not like, like you they lose really failed anything they just chose to have a shittier existence. You lose. So uh, I, I haven't really mentioned it because it's just not a part of my campaign, but uh, that is the way it works in the Fate of Istis campaign is uh, at the end of that adventure, it's the same thing. Like if they succeed in their quest, then the then all the clerics get a boost. And if they fail, then all the clerics get a, get a, a, a penalty. And, and I knew about the, same... the boost throughout, but I didn't know about the penalties. Uh, so, like, let's he let's see here. Um, I'm trying to find another example. Where is it? Where is it? Because they're all they're all based on classes. So here we are in Jern. Oh, this one isn't, this one isn't, I'll, I'll try to find another, uh, another example of it, uh, while you describe yours, but there are a lot of class specific boosts and consequences throughout. Uh, if the PCs fail to save the notes in Eldred, all the bards in Greyhawk lose a point of constitution. However, if they succeed, they get a boost. So it it's always a, just a minus one constitution. I think it might be too, which might be one of the reasons that I just dispensed with it because it's not very interesting. It's the same penalty every time. That yeah, if anything, that just seems like the more creative thing would be like they become more susceptible to the plague. Yeah, that's what it is. So like uh, the the one in Rook Roost is for thieves. And uh, it's the same deal if they fail to meet these criteria that are set out uh, where 
They must not leave behind any of their numbers slain by the traps. Uh, and they must test or they must bring the plague treatment potion out of the tower. If they fail to meet both these criteria, all the thieves lose one point of constitution. I do like that those qualifiers a lot better than just like if they don't take the quest, then this happens. Like the idea that they're actually there are stakes, basically. I, I like these sort of like world defining stakes. But it needs it needs better consequences than just like, uh-oh, guess what, guys? This time all the fighters lose one point of constitution. But it's interesting to me because since it's constitution, you could flavor that as like suddenly those characters of those classes like begin to get the plague since you have the plague going on as well. Yeah, that's true. Though if I were to do the sort of consequences of failing adventures thing with a campaign like this, I'd be more inclined to make it like the pertinent stat for each class. Like what's the point of focusing on a class if you're just going to make it the same stat? Like bards, if you fail the bard quest, then all the bards lose a point of charisma. And that's much more harmful to bards. Um, They become all tongue-tied and start screwing up all over the place. Um, you know, that was, uh, that was a thing with the old Greek epics was, uh, they used to pray to the gods that they tell the story right. And if a guy screwed up, it was like, uh, gods didn't bless that dude. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we've been on going for almost, we've, we've been going for almost an hour now, so I don't even know if we're going to get on down to the tavern this time, but we'll see. Last time I began the act stratification in Al's Aces, which takes place in the the northern mountains that border the northern highlands in Drail. If you want to check out the map of Drail, check out our uh, second post on the comparingcampaign.wordpress. Anyways, um, maybe we should just repost that image again, but whatever. So, last time, Al's... Alzaces returned from Sitra Arha to find that they had been absent for a whole year, despite not like seeming to have only been gone uh, for maybe a little more than a week. Um, when they returned through the portal, they found that an old missing in action MPOC agent by the name of Serpentine had also come through the portal with them. Uh, who had been missing far, far longer than they had. Um, But upon her return, she decided that the most important thing was to invest herself into trying to find Odium, the founder of the Empok who is missing. So she invested herself in that. Meanwhile, Alsamasath, who's the sort of uh, operating chief of the Empok, the goblin from which Alzaces get their name, uh, he sends them to the northern mountains bordering the highlands during Winterfest, the uh, big sort of cultural winter event that's shared by the dwarves and the dragon, the draconics and the avians and everyone who lives up in that area. But they're there to inv- investigate the activity of the cult of Cryonax in the area, was the elemental evil prince of, of cold, and also to hunt for the legendary villain the war which who is believed to be involved 
and the cult's activities. So they attended a Winterfest party to gather intel from various VIPs, including members of the three Goliath clans that I went over. Uh, Kendor, which is the one that Ara Stormblast Kendor of Al's Aces is from. Uh, then, then, and they are the clan of Storm and Chant. Then we got uh, Bress, which is uh, the clan of the Eye and the Hand, and uh, Ara's best friend Habna Bress. Habna Cavefish Bress is a member of that one. And there's Choth- Chothra, the, uh, the clan of Beast and Blade, I believe it was. So, Mog Daydreamer Chothra, the elder of the Chothra clan, informed the Aces of his concerns regarding the Sunsmoke Order of Monks. Uh, the, and the Sunsmoke Order of Monks had been attracting large numbers of Goliaths who either did not return or else returned seemingly unhealthy and fanatical, such as uh, Gia Whistlestep Bress, who had come to the party but was seeming uh, malnourished and all kind of cult-like after uh, her time with the Sunsmoke Order. So, uh, after learning that the Sunsmoke Order had been trafficking drugs with the Bong Druid of Mammoth Weed Mountain, Hardy was attacked by dust methods sent to harry them in their investigation, and that's where we left off. So, from here, the players basically have all they need to know to be like, all right, we need to look into this sun smoke order and see what the heck's going on. But they figure out that the initiates, like the new Goliath that are joining and whatnot, they are being sent to a retreat that's fairly nearby, which is like where you go to, like you aren't sent to the monastery right away. You're first sent to this retreat where you sort of like learn the tenets and become an initiate. And, uh, Players managed to secure entry initially by making uh, donations on their way in, which always helps, uh, especially when you know that the order may have been infiltrated by cultists and is corrupt, uh, involved in drug trafficking and whatnot. Just, uh, you know, make a quote-unquote donation to the order, and you can get in. Um... Then, as th- so they enter this retreat area, it's sort of this, uh, this structure um, that has a garden area around it. And in the garden, they realize, uh, sort of coinciding with what they've already found at the Bong Druid of, of Mammoth Weed Mountains and whatnot, um, they realize that this garden is really, it's a drug grow up. And the initiates are being made to tend to a garden, which is l- like really they're being made to... Uh, operate a drug grow up and Chessie manages to sneak away from sort of the guards that are with them as they enter the grounds and she uh find she manages to break into a shed using thieves tools and she finds the exit to a secret escape tunnel and so she immediately wants to like check that tunnel out and see what's going on there so she comes back to the party and it's sort of a thing of like, I think the party's attitude was like, well, this is going to break bad sooner or later. We might as well, like, Chessie's like, well, let's go check the tunnel. Let's just, these guards, they don't look like monks. They took the bribe. They don't seem like monks. Everything we know tells us that this place has been infiltrated by the cult of Crynax. These guys are armed. They do not seem like monks. We should just, basically, they turn on the guards defeat them in combat, and then they manage to break away to the shed and check out this tunnel. 
Um, so the uh, party gets into the tunnel. Uh, they managed to disarm and bypass a spiked pit trap that was within to try and stop people from coming in through the tunnel. They managed to get by it. And they get into an underground area that uh, they figure out is a drug lab where the harvest from the garden above is being made into the narcotics that the bong druid of Weed Mountain had been involved with. And uh, unfortunately, though, when they get into that lab, they also find that there are three griffins nesting down there. And the griffins wake up and they end up in combat with some big old griffins in a confined underground area. They manage to beat the griffins, but... Um, then they discover that connected to this underground lab is a cell block. Uh, and in the cell block, they find the true Sunsmoke Master that's supposed to be in charge of the retreat that the Cult of Cryonax has imprisoned. He's a minotaur by the name of Zan. This is another uh, NPC that appears in my module Sunsmoke on the Water, where I reused my idea of the Sunsmoke Order and some of its members. So Zan the Minotaur, he reveals that the cult has constructed a foul temple beneath the retreat uh, to Cryonax. And so the players uh, go into this temple and there's an air elemental hiding in it. And so they defeat the air elemental and destroy the cult's evil altar to Cryonax. Um, and then from there, they ascend up through the retreat um, through like a, a, the basement, basically. And they go through the retreat, fighting the cultists of Cryonax, defeating them, and rescuing the mis misled Goliath monks, quote-unquote, along the way. Um, and on the roof, there was also a special encounter where the cult deployed frost owls and flocks of white wings, uh, like basically birds of the northern highlands uh, that are like attuned to the winter, so in keeping with the theme of Cryonax trained to serve the cultists and attack the party. And uh, in the end, all the Goliaths were returned to their clans alive. Um, also, like, just generally on that note of, like, the Frost Owls and the White Wings, there's, like, a whole... There's, like, a whole winter theme to, like, this act. And it's funny because I remember that running this act actually took so long that, like, it, I, it may have covered, like the better part of a year. Like we went through multiple seasons, but I think I remember like there's a one critical point in this act where I was like, God, I hope that one I run in winter. Cause it'll just be like the ultimate winter adventure session. And uh, I think that one did work out. I could probably check the dates cause I got dates on all my notes. Um, but so cult of Cryonax, winter theme, all that, they rescue the uh, true master of the retreat and the Goliath that have been like led astray by the cult of Cryonax within this retreat that they've infiltrated. And then um, in return for their help for uh, getting all the Goliaths back to safety, uh, Mog Daydreamer Chothra, the elder of the Chothra clan, uh, pledges his support for Serpentine in seeking out Odium so basically Serpentine, who had previously been like basically on her own, now has the support of a major Goliath leader. Um, so she has some backing to help her try and figure out where Odium's gone. Uh, also, 
and this happened before they had left the um the retreat but ara stormblast kendor who's in the party uh he was also reunited with his best friend habna cavefish breast who is not with the other clans but was actually in the retreat uh what happened was habna and his new romantic partner who is the bounty hunter nula bird eater chothra who i've also mentioned before back in stormgate she's the one who ended up killing uh cal i sheer the misogynistic drow villain who they fought in the first act um so habna and nula had fled to the northern mountains from stormgate together because they'd been set up uh and made to take the fall for some calamitous bloodhound job and that bloodhound job was yet another aftershock of Chessie's real estate scam in the city of Stormgate, which had at this point spilled out into a major gang war between Inkpin and the dwarves from the north. Um, and actually, it should be said that like this is all basically catching them up on stuff that has happened in the year that they were absent in Citra Arha. So what they learned from Habna is like all this stuff has happened in Stormgate. So... They had to leave because things were getting too hot and they took the wrong job and basically ran afoul of this gang war. Then, since they've been gone, um, Magnus Dwarfbelly, who was in the previous party of Empok's Finest and started the Cyclopean Order of Garador's Wrath, this group of, like, Judge Dread-style paladins, it had been foreshadowed on Chessie's date with Dax that the gangs might end up... the dwarves... Uh, the dwarf gang might end up calling in Magnus and these like judge dread paladins to start kicking King Inkpin's ass. And so they find out that that did happen and Inkpin and his gang have been driven out of Stormgate, but also coinciding with Magnus and his order's arrival in Stormgate, a bunch of uh, Aku's officials in the city got assassinated and because of the coincidence, Aku blamed the Order for those assassinations, and so the Order and Magnus was banned from Stormgate, uh, which really, this kind of conflict between Aku and the Cyclopean Order seems like it would be, like, inevitable, but, like, now it's, like, official. Is like, Aku's banned him and his Order from, the, from the, his city, and that city is one of, like, the major capitals in the world, so having the paladin order banned from there is like immediately there's some tension. Um, Can't stop the shape-shifting master of darkness. But yeah, then it turns out that like, so they're fighting their way through the retreat and then they suddenly run into Nula Chothra and they're like, wait, what are you doing here? And she's like, I came here with Habna Bress, it's kind of a long story. And they're like, wait, Habna Bress is here? We gotta rescue him too, my best friend? And suddenly it's like the stakes are that much higher because f- they've been trying to rescue these Goliath, but then they find out that uh, Ara's best friend has been caught up in this nonsense. And so basically, Nula and Habna had tried to go into hiding and had joined the Order, like basically seeking a way to hide from the, the heat they'd taken on in Stormgate. But then they got mixed up in this dang old cult of Krynax scam. And so they too were rescued by Al's aces. And so yeah, that was Operation Sleigh Ride. Introduction to uh, the act stratification. 
think it might be Act 6? I feel like I, I did this math on a recent episode, and then I... I think it's Act heard. 6. Yeah. Sounds right. You know, we got uh, Conqueror. We got the one where they went to hell in Kanya. We went. They, we got the very short one where in the where they're in the far realms. We got the one on uh, the Arctopus. Then they went to Citra Arha. Then this one. It's number six. Yeah. Man, you were worried that we wouldn't have time to go to the tavern, but that was tight. I mean, it's because I did. The, it's, you know, I was thinking. I I really love. You know, I I may have talked about this on the podcast before, but one of my favorite ways to consume media these days is to not like consume it the proper way, but read just read synopses on Wikipedia. Like, I don't have to know. I I don't have to suffer through all the like really painful shit in any given TV drama if I can just like read through the episode synopses and get the basic gist of what happens in each one. And uh, you know, Do you do I was that thinking, for like everything though. Not everything. Some things are good enough to like experience, but some things I'm like, I'm not so sure about this. And then I checked the synopses. You know, I did that for uh, Invincible. Do that for, you know, any, anything that just like seems to offend me too much to be worth watching all the way through. <laughs> <laughs> There's plenty of comic books I've read just the synopses of, uh, or. I have read and then upon revisiting chosen to only revisit the synopses to refresh my memory because I don't you know what, want to. You know what that reminds me of is it reminds me of when I was like 13, 12 or 13 years old uh, in the early age of the internet uh, back in the dial up days, but also before like streaming and, uh, you know, even services where you could get uh, like videos mailed back to you when everything. I used back to back when I used to leave the computer on for three hours just so I could load up a quick time trailer for the mummy returns precisely that so back in those days uh if I still to this uh, day one of the best trailers ever <laughs> <laughs> there's just so um, much shit in it you can't even believe that all that shit is in the movie yeah, what do you think of the movie itself, though? Because I thought The Mummy Returns was kind of weak sauce compared to The Mummy. Man, I actually have a, a pretty hot take on The Mummy Returns, which is that I don't think that we would have The Lord of the Rings as we know it without The Mummy Returns. Ooh. The Mummy Returns came almost immediately before Fellowship of the Ring and established yeah. so much stuff about like how those battle scenes are shot and like the use oh, of CGI yeah, for big monsters point. and stuff. It's and and like also friggin' big debut of the rock as the scorpion king. Yeah. Like really, honestly, that movie, there's so much to it. Like, even though there are things about like it that this... don't hold up at all, there's tons about it that you go back and you're like, wow. It was like wow. a, a real sort of underrated milestone in pop culture. You're absolutely right. And it's and well, it and is you know still what it resonating is. today. But but you know what it is that like why it is completely eclipsed as a cultural milestone. I'm I I'm pretty sure this is right. It was like the big hit movie the summer before nine eleven. After that, it oh, was yeah. like 
everything changed. Well, I believe that was was a huge change because I, I think it's also a huge change because like it, we went from having a sort of cultural moment that actually looked sort of towards the, the middle East and towards Egypt and that sort of like, uh, cradle of civilization. And then we immediately had this huge, like zeitgeist moment where suddenly like the general sentiment towards that whole area of the world became so violently hostile. Right. Um, That's a good point. I was going to say though, I think, Oh yeah. Sorry. The thing you were going to say. Oh, I was just going to say also, I believe that summer is when the sixth sense came out. And I think that probably also overshadowed it. And then there was one, one more thing I would say was that was in video games. um, I think it went right alongside Diablo two, which is another sort of instance of like that sort of cultural moment that I saw where it was like you had this sort of like desert fantasy uh, swing that suddenly gets immediately cut short with this huge like world shaking event. Um, And then we had Lord of the Rings and then it was like that fantasy took us away. Damn, dude. Like, this was so much more in-depth on The Mummy Returns than I could have ever anticipated, but I like your theory on it. It uh, was all just so I could talk about the how I used to wait for that QuickTime trailer to load. But Well, like, and that's that, a, that came other... out of the point that I was trying to make, which is uh, you talk about reading synopses of media right. instead of consuming it. So what I was going to say is, you know, back in the days where the only way you could see a movie, like... Uh, rent a movie was you go to the store and just whatever they had those are your options and so for movies that i couldn't readily get i would go to a site that still exists called drew's scriptorama and i would download and read movie scripts for movies that i couldn't find copies i've read some good scripts on that scriptorama yeah man that i read the script for army of darkness before i even saw it uh the script for uh land of the dead is better than the movie of land of the dead i believe that yeah it has a scene where there are zombie rats and they have to make a bridge pull up before a swarm of zombie rats crosses it and like man how did that not get in the movie that's so freaking cool man look what you just did you wrapped us back around to the pipes of the sewers yeah all the way back you want to hit the tavern? I got something for the tavern. Yeah, we got we got a bit of time. We got a bit of time for the tavern, and my my thing's pretty small. It's more so of a, is mine. L- like my like my episode today. Uh, my thing's more of a continuation of the of the last uh, thing I did. So uh, my thing for the tavern. This is a really handy DM's resource that I've actually been wanting to talk about for a while. But it went down for a bit, uh, and it's called Kobold Fight Club. Have you heard of Kobold Fight Club? Only since you mentioned it in this, and I, it makes me think about Goblin Bet. It is not Goblin Bet. It is uh, a handy encounter-building engine. So here, I'm going to send you the link. And uh, so originally, Kobold Fight Club uh, could be found... Uh, where is it... Uh, kobold.club slash fight 
uh, was the original one, but the new one is koboldplus.club, uh, where you can find it. And this is an encounter generator. You can set the number of players, you can set their levels, and you can choose a random encounter from easy, medium, hard, or deadly difficulty, and it will it will just generate encounters for you no matter how many times you click it. So, for example, if I have a party of four seventh-level uh, characters and I want a hard encounter, uh, they're going up against one hi uh, one hippogriff and one chul. I believe. Or no, they're uh, going up Donjon. against five hip. Sorry, five hippogriffs and one chul. I, d I believe my old fave Donjon Donjon.bin.sh uh, also has an encounter builder of this like. I. Uh, uh, this time they're going up against four giant toads and two killer whales. Ah, <laughs> oh, dang! Get out of the water, guys. Or just eight Durgar, and so that's the uh, that's the random encounter Dwayne, generator part of it that I think is pretty cool. Here's one I just generated: two carrion crawlers and a werewolf. That's a hell of an encounter, and it tells you uh, the total XP, how many per player, and the adjusted XP as well. Um, you can even like you can save it. You can create new encounters, and then also as part of this, there is a uh, a resource where you can just filter through all the monsters. You can specify size, type, minimum challenge rating, max challenge rating, alignment environment, uh, whether or not it's legendary. Uh, you can set sources. They have a lot of different sources. By default, it's just the monster manual and the player's handbook, but you can throw in like Curse of Strahd, Rise of Tiamat, uh, third-party ones. Yeah, Donjon don't have that. Donjon has this, but it only has some sources. Yeah, so there are a lot of different sources here, and uh, it used to run off of Google Sheets, but uh, it kept hitting a limit, like an access limit to it, and so the original Kobold Fight Club went down, but all of the source code is on GitHub and it's open source. So somebody built a new one, Kobold Fight Club is back, and it's just, I find it really, really handy resource to, uh, to access, you know, stats and all that. And you can easily add new monsters to the encounters. There's just like a handy plus button next to, uh, next to the monster list where you can add whatever you want. It even tells you like what page of the monster manual you can find the specific monster on. So I'm just like scrolling through here. Here we go. Uh, Constrictor Snake, monster manual, page 320. It's half a CR. I'm just gonna add that to the encounter. So there we go. It's worth 50 XP. Pretty cool, man. So that's my, my DM resource. It's Kobold Fight Club if you need an easy encounter generator. And it's just fun to play with. I like uh, sort of, you know, setting up what my party is. Right now I'm running a campaign with five fifth level characters. So let's, I'm just going to generate some medium encounters for them. Two ghasts and two giant spiders. Sounds like, a, like maybe a cave or a crypt adventure there. Uh, a goblin, two goblin bosses and two hunter sharks. Uh, this is maybe also a cave, but one with like a, a lake, an underground lake or river. Good source of inspiration. Eight wargs, probably in the forest. So, uh, my thing, I want to keep talking about Nosferatu. Nosferatu 2 is what I call this. Nosferatu. Ah, the 2. sequel. The sequel. 
Um, so, McGill, each of the main clans in Vampire the Requiem has three core disciplines, three core vampire powers that they use their vampire blood to do cool powers with. What do you think are the three powers that the Nosferatu have? The three powers that the Nosferatu have. They must have some sort of, like, hypnotic gaze, right? Um, not really. Hypnotic gaze is more of a thing from a different vampire type, the Ventru, who have Dominate. Uh, and then there's also a more general kind of influencing people's minds called Majesty that the Deva have. But... Nosferatu don't have a hypnotic gaze. Hmm, okay. What about uh, some kind of, like, psychic leech power? We can, like, absorb psychic energy. Nosferatu don't really do psychic stuff. Uh, Oh, my gosh. The the Mechat have sort of, like, uh, clairvoyance, and they can astrally project and stuff, but even that doesn't really do psychic leeching. Can the Nosferatu fly? No. <laughs> I'm if you wanted to fly, out. you'd want to be a gangrel that has the beast powers. So, let's start. Um, okay, so generally, each clan has one of the three general physical abilities. So they can either use their blood to be super fast, super tough, or super strong. Which would you guess for the Nosferatu? Maybe super tough? They're actually the super strong, uh, ah. which I like. Uh, there, there's, um, there's a vampire novel that uh, I have called 13 Bullets, and that has really big monstrous vampires that like can rip people in half and stuff. And I like that. That book almost has like super strong Nosferatu's, basically. I thought that was cool. Um, so they have that. Then there are two, like, non-physical disciplines that are more generalized, not special to specific clans. Um, and those are animalism and obfuscate. Uh, okay, and obfuscate. Honestly, honestly, I'm a bit surprised because I don't think that Nosferatu have animalism, even though that's the one that, like, Let's yeah they their core disciplines does not include animalism which lets you like control animals and stuff and like talk to rats and summon swarms of rats and whatnot but uh they have obfuscate which is like stealth powers so um vigor the strength one is pretty self-explanatory the more blood you pump into your muscles the stronger monster you get to be but uh obfuscate their stealth ability uh at the lowest level they have touch of shadow which basically they can touch an object and make it invisible so they can like smuggle items and whatnot uh at the next level they have mask of tranquility which uh (laughs) basically you can uh mask your predator's taint (laughs) <laughs> which More is so like funny underpants of tranquility i'm just noticing actually that in in a, on a wiki page here that i'm reading for this they have updates listed for the vampire the requiem second edition for the new chronicles of darkness system and in that 
they used the term predatory aura. And I guarantee that that was the fix for Predator's Taint. Predatory Aura is Predator's Taint, but which, with a much more marketable name. Um, then, Obfuscate, at the third level, you have Cloak of Night, and that is invisibility, basically. Then, you have a really interesting one, I think, called The Familiar Stranger. And this is basically that when you... Say you're a vampire and you're looking for a victim and you see someone waiting outside a place. You use this ability and you appear to be the person that they are waiting for. The familiar stranger basically makes you appear to be the person that they are expecting, that someone is expecting to see. But the trick about this is that you don't know who they are expecting to see necessarily. You can find out um, but there's actually, there are special um, power combinations in the game that you can get uh, through like higher experience costs if you have the requisite abilities. And you can, by combining one of the uh, psychic, one of the mechets like uh, clairvoyance abilities with Familiar Stranger, you can then get a devotion called Know the Stranger, wherein you understand who you you who you appear as when you become the familiar stranger. And it's interesting to me because it it like you were guessing things that were much more typical like role playing game powers like flying and and psychic leeching and stuff, but Vampire the Requiem was always designed with like you know you don't have encounters you have scenes. And you have abilities that you can use once per scene. And I like how the familiar stranger is like, it, it's it's an example of the way that the mechanics are designed to specifically create little dramatic scenes rather than like, like the familiar stranger isn't something you really use in a fight. It's something you use to play out an interesting uh, interaction in a scene where you are either looking for right. a victim or looking to trick somebody. Um, I mean, I was mainly just guessing, like, vampire powers based off of the movie Nosferatu. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's probably a, a good call, too. Um, and then finally, the top obfuscate ability is Cloak the Gathering, which is like mass invisibility, group invisibility. So, the question is, what is the unique power that only Nosferatu get natural access to? What it is, they have. Do you want to take one last guess? No, I'm just gonna. I'm gonna bomb it. I know. You better just tell me. They have a power called nightmare, which they can manipulate the fear of people. This is sort of going back to the thing I talked about last episode with how there was different interpretations between the editions of how the curse of the Nosferatu manifested itself. But then their sort of power is that um, they can literally affect people's minds directly through this like supernatural control of fear itself. Uh, and so the levels for this are monstrous countenance. They have a they can take on a scary visage that terrifies people. Uh, dread, wherein they sort of like um, like affect somebody with like long term fear of something. Uh, Eye of the Beast, which is also 
a Predator's Taint effect, which is... Uh, so I've met back in the Predator's Taint episode. I don't know if you even remember beyond all the giggles we were having, but the way it works is that if you meet a vampire of higher level than you, you have to check for fear frenzy while the other vampire who's stronger has to check for anger frenzy. And like they're depending on like your relative level that might play out differently. Like you might both fear frenzy or you might both anger frenzy, but, uh, I of the beast basically makes it so you can like project at a higher level than you are. Like you always trigger, you never trigger the fear frenzy. You always trigger the fear frenzy in the other guy, basically. Like you don't get afraid. The other guy gets afraid. You get angry. Um, then we have shatter the mind, which is you inflict a fear in someone so strong that it inflicts like an ongoing derangement in them. So like basically inflicting madness in Dungeons and Dragons terms. And then finally mortal fear, wherein you can literally do damage and potentially kill someone by scaring them so bad, scare them and give them a heart attack. Do some the rings type stuff. So those are the base <laughs> powers of the Nosferati. And there was one more thing that I want to cover, actually, which is, uh, say you're playing a Nosferatu, but you want to be, like, one of these special Nosferatu because you got vampire clans, but then you got the subtypes, the bloodlines. And uh, so there's a special type of Nosferatu you could play. Uh, Does it go so really fast? Is it a Nosferatu? No, 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 no. No, it doesn't have the speed ability even. But it has all the abilities I've just listed and then another one. Um, and basically, this is a Japanese vampire bloodline that is descended. It's a Nosferatu bloodline that was specifically cultivated among uh, undertakers, executioners, uh, people who were marked uh, within society as being spiritually unclean because their professions brought them into contact with death. And uh, every vampire clan has their name like Nosferatu, but then they have a nickname. So Nosferatu are nicknamed Haunts, uh, Maquette are nicknamed Shadows, and these guys are nicknamed the Unclean, which is what I'm going to call them. The reason I'm going to call them this is because, and and this is a, a bloodline that, to my knowledge, has never been reprinted or brought up outside of the original Vampire of the Requiem rulebook. In the core rules, they were one of the five bloodlines. Each clan got a bloodline listed at the back of the book in the appendices, and this was the Nosferatu one. Now, um... I don't know if any listeners are going to recognize this when I say that the bloodline was called the Barakumen. Burakumen. And um, the problem with this... So this is actually something that I didn't know about when I was first exposed to this, but have since become educated on. And as always, when we cover a White Wolf thing, we got to cover why White Wolf is canceled this time. And so this is what I came to learn is like something very problematic in this. Uh, the Barakamen were a real people. 
They were not a bloodline of vampires. They were a real... Um, I, I don't know if you knew this, but Japan used to have a very rigid caste system. And so the Barakumin was one name that was given to a certain level of the social caste that was basically like comparing to other social castes like pariahs. Um, and like like in the sort of lore of this, it is because they were seen as unclean because their professions brought them in contact with death and that was seen as like spiritually damning, basically. It would like... and and But to the point that it damned your entire family like you you your whole family and everyone in your bloodline would always be undertakers grave diggers executioners because you were like cursed basically and the beyond the fact that this was a real thing and a real uh hardship that a real people endured and we shouldn't be making up vampires who are based on them uh using names for those casts of people in the modern day in Japan is effectively equivalent to what we would recognize as like the n-word being like to it is so socially taboo to refer to anyone in the current Japanese climate as being like basically from the slave caste of that old time it is beyond fighting words it is completely you do not do it and so basically uh in the core rule book for vampire the requiem one of the appendices has a bloodline that is just called a racial slur uh, oh boy. like an ethnic slur basically like uh, well. the thi- what, what really hit me was that i played vampire with a group and one of the guys spoke japanese and when he found out about this, the look of shock on his face was like, it, it, it was like you knew that something really bad had been like oh, lost wow. in translation or something. And so anyways, the thing is, you could still do a cool like vampire if they were just their nickname, the unclean. And it was like these vampire remnants of this old feudal age that had held on to this like like maybe they had held on to like this sort of vengeful notions because of how uh how downcast they had been and that could play in like in the development of this bloodline that sort of plays into the fact that they are a nosferatu bloodline is like the nosferatu clan when that is passed when that type of vampirism is passed on to you is typically a curse and so the idea that like members of this cast would literally be cursed with vampirism um but then become this like special sect of vampires in their own culture like there's something there but it needs to be treated like with way more like it's so wild that they managed to educate themselves enough to know about that social cast and create this care this like bloodline based on it but to not also learn about like the social connotations within that and be like oh we have to handle this like very carefully um oh boy rather than have these guys be a bloodline of japanese uh nosferatu who happen to have necromancer powers which is what they are basically um so they have a cool power called getsume 
which means the moonlit path, and it is basically uh, vampire necromancy. And it's a bit neat because vampire nec- vampire the requiem, like I've sort of said already, um, tries to shy away from sort of more supernatural stuff like this. Um, and even then, as necromancy, you'll see how it's kind of like uh, restrained. So the first level is Moonlit Presentation. Uh, It preserves a mortal corpse in its current state without the need for chemicals. Uh, The next one is Crow's Harvest. By looking into the intact eye of a corpse, the Barak... I really shouldn't say that. The unclean glimpses a vision of the corpse's last moments. Uh, Corpse skin. They cause their flesh to harden in the manner of of a decaying corpse, granting them armor-like protection. Uh, So like a cool flavor of like stone skin or or bark skin or what have you uh channel of hasuko creates a small homunculus like undead servant from pieces of a corpse so you can have a little the thing style familiar it's like made of like a skull and a bunch of bones cool um and finally convocation of hatoke which raises one or more corpses as servants which carry out a simple order and one thing that is cool about this is that what this does show is neat ways that you could flavor uh, equivalent spells to these abilities in Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. So, Moonlit Presentation could be just your version of, like, a ritual version of, uh, it's like, Preserve the Dead or something? It's a cantrip, uh... For, it's a necromancy cantrip, and it literally does the same thing where it's, uh, you know, pre- preserves a dead body in its current state. Um, let me check the old cantrip spell sheet. Uh, might be Spare the Dying. No, it's not Spare the Dying. I can't remember. Dangus. Uh, is it gentle repose? Yes. Second level necromancy ritual. You touch a corpse or other remains for the duration. The target is protected from decay and can't become undead. So there you go. You do your moonlit presentation can be your cool flavored, like, uh, sort of Japanese lore flavored version of, uh, uh, what I just called it. Gentle repose. Then Crow's Harvest, that could be like a cool version of uh, Speak with Dead, where instead you look into the eye of the corpse and glimpse a vision of their last moments. And then Corpse Skin could be how you flavor uh, Mage Armor or Bark Skin or Stone Skin. You like have hardening, decaying Corpse Skin that gives you like Corpse Armor. Uh, Channel of Hasuko, you could have like um, Unseen Servant or or just a familiar really and make a familiar that's like a little homunculus that's made of pieces of a corpse. Um, and then convocation of Hatoke, that could just be your, your animate dead, your raised dead abilities. So you could basically do a cool Japanese, uh, like lore mythology, lore themed, uh, necromancer based on that idea, but just don't use that name. Dang it. White wolf. So, another episode, episode 75, Dangus White Wolf. Uh, It's been August the 23rd, 2021, 
And uh, mine was Operation Sleigh Ride. You had Service for the Dead and Winter Shivan. And uh, if you want to get in touch with us, follow us, see when we post new episodes, check us out on Facebook, Comparing Campaign on Facebook. And uh, if you want to see our show notes, see us post stuff that we uh, reference, like trailers for The Mummy Returns, uh, link to Kobold Fight Club, uh, you know, might put up a map of Drail again, just so it's, you know, not all the way back there. But, you know, the fact that it's all the way back to the beginning makes it easy to find. It's just that I think it's like the second post and not the first or something. Point is, there's a map of Drail we'll there. Repost it. Show notes, notes, all the things we talked about. You'll find it there. Compare and compare and campaign dot wordpress dot com. That's it. That's the whole show. If you're in a dang old crypt or a mausoleum or a, or a catacombs, don't steal, because it's haunted. Because it's haunted, and level up your characters. Get that ding. Yeah, uh, my my uh, current party that I'm running got their ding. They're level 20 hey. now. Hey, ding ding. There you are. That's another follow-up from last time. Take care, everybody.